Uh, if you got a Bible, open to Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning as we start a new series together, Romans chapter 12. Uh, I want to introduce this new series uh, this morning uh, as we begin to look at Romans 12 over the course of this fall, uh, looking at this question of how to be the church. How is it that we are to be the church? And I want to start with asking this question first, because I think it comes underneath that question is this, is why the church? Why the church? There's some folks who think that the church is kind of God's eternal humanitarian relief organization. Or there's some folks who think that the church is God's eternal social organization. There's lots of great humanitarian and disaster relief organizations out there that provide all kinds of support in the midst of destruction and chaos. Uh, if, if you are on our email list, you saw earlier this week we sent out an email that we had an opportunity to partner in a multi-church um, uh, effort to help provide relief supplies to those in Louisiana uh, who are experiencing the devastating floods right now. So there's the uh, you know, Red Cross sends support and sends teams to do those kinds of things. There's lots of humanitarian organizations, Samaritan's Purse, all kinds of nonprofits that show up on the scene for those kinds of things. And there's all kinds of social organizations that exist within our culture as well. You can connect with people at CrossFit gyms, right? You can connect with people uh, at bunko nights or in bingo halls. Uh, You can connect with people at homeschool co-ops or on private or public school athletic programs and teams. You can connect with people on fishing forums or hunting trips. You can connect with people around all kinds of affinities and interests that you might have. And so the church, why the church then, right? If I've got relationships in my life around all these things uh, that I enjoy doing and that I have interest in, and there's other organizations that I can be a part of to help address some of the larger issues within the culture or disasters as they break forth, then why the church? Right? It's, a great, it's a great question. Why the church? And I think the answer to that question is this, is that the church exists not as an eternal humanitarian relief organization, nor does it exist as an eternal social organization or club, but the church exists because God, by his grace and mercy, is marking out a people for himself to declare his praises and glory to all the nations forever and ever, amen. God is seeking out those rebels who have run from him in order to rescue them and bring them back into relationship with himself to put them back together in the image of Christ so that they might be declaring his praises into all of eternity. That's why the church exists, because God is doing something. Not because we have common interests and not because just necessarily we live in a common area, but because God is working, God is at work, God is, has activity that he is pursuing, right? And so God's calling, marking out a people for himself, and he's bringing them together with each other. So that, one of the things that means is this, is there's, not a, a, there's, there's no such thing as a churchless Christian, <laughs> There's no such thing as like a lone ranger Christian who just kind of wanders out there aimlessly and maybe shows up in the doors of a church every so often. But to to be a part of what God is doing in this world is to be a part of the people that he is forming. To be a part of the people that he is marking out and bringing together. That's why the church exists. So the next question is this, maybe why this church? And I've had folks ask me that question recently and I've been kicking that around in my mind been wrestling with that question why this church why here and why now let me just give you a little bit of information in the year 2000 so 16 years ago the city of fate had 602 residents 602 
okay? Now fast forward to 2016. In 2016, the population estimate of the city of fate is now busting at, at oh, just over 10,000. Now over the course of those 16 years, that's been a 1,500, 1,500% growth rate of population in the city of fate over the course of the last 16 years. And when you look at the population projections for the next 14 years up until 2030, the city of fate, if it continues to grow at that pace or close to that pace, which all indications as you look around and see all the dirt turning and new houses being constructed and built, it would seem that it's probably going to continue to grow as, of course, fate continues to suck in land all over the place as well, trying to expand their borders, keep annexing property. It's one way to grow. Uh, but they also keep building houses, Right? And so if the population is projected by 2030 to be around just over 20,000 individuals, to double again in the next 14 years. If you go outside the city of fate and you look at Rockwall County, Rockwall County in the tw year 2015, the population was estimated to be at 95,000 people in Rockwall County. Based on the, the, the growth rate that the demographers are projecting, the studies that they've done, that by 2030, Rockwall County will be home to about 170,000 residents. So it will come close to doubling over the course of the next several years. So there'll be 170,000 people here in 2030. In addition, the western edge of Hunt County continues to swell and grow as well as Royce City grows. The, north, the southern portions of Collin County continue to swell and grow as well as Nevada and Levon and all that area up 78 continues to grow. Like growth is moving this direction. That means people are moving this direction. That means people are moving this direction. And listen, here's what, I, here's what I want to say when you ask the question, why this church? Why now? Why here? And here's why. Because if the Big C Church, right, the Big C Church in Rockwall County, isn't serious about planting churches in Rockwall County now, today, then five years from now, ten years from now, fifteen years from now, we're going to be woefully behind the curve on the population growth that's going to be moving into this area. Woefully behind the curve. There won't be enough churches here to serve the population, to connect with the people that God is bringing into our backyards. Listen, uh, a few more statistics for you. I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot. Right? The, the largest megachurch in our area has about 9,000 individuals that funnel through its doors every Sunday morning. And at the current population of Rockwell County, it would take 10 of those megachurches to reach every person in Rockwell County. Now can you imagine 10 churches with 9,000 people funneling through their doors every Sunday morning? In 15 years, it will take 20 churches of that size to reach every person in Rockwall County with the gospel and disciple them into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I have a hard time imagining 20 churches of 10,000 people busting at the seams in 15 years. I also have a hard time imagining that some of those larger churches are going to be able to take in all of the population that moves into Rockwall County over the next 15 years. That are going to be moving into our backyards and next door to us. And so when I think about the question, why this church? And why now? Why here? The reason, the reason 
is because we want to plant a gospel movement in the heart of Rockwall County that would see churches multiplied into every, every setting, every population center, every neighborhood, every community that exists around here. Some of you know, if you've been around long enough, that our long-term vision is not to build a super center, but to build a local grocery store that would build other local grocery stores. Right? We don't, we don't, we don't necessarily envision a Walmart super center or a Home Depot, but an Ace Hardware store in the heart of this community that would build other Ace Hardware stores in the hearts of their communities and plant other churches. And if we right now, the Big C Church in Rockwall County isn't serious, it doesn't get serious today about planting gospel-centered, mission-minded places that would serve, love, and give themselves for their community in such a way that the gospel would go forth and that people would be saved and baptized and integrated into the life of a local church, the large, the large churches in our area aren't going to have the capacity to hold all the people God is bringing to this community. And so when I think about why this church, it's because 15 years from now, 30 years from now, I want to see a movement of churches planted in Rockwell County that are thriving centers in which God is marking out people by his mercy for his glory and his praise and putting them back together in the image of Jesus Christ. And if that's going to happen for us as we roll into this new season of ministry, then one of the things that's going to be necessary for us as a church is, is that we, we, we've got to, and I've been just as guilty of this as anyone. Let me go ahead and have public confession this morning, right? I've been just as guilty of this as anyone in the life of our congregation. Is that we've got to have a shift in our mindset from functioning and, and viewing ourselves as a small church to viewing ourselves as a church plant, because the mentalities and the frameworks and the perspectives of those two uh, types of churches are pretty radically different. Listen, in a small church, people are drawn to a small church and they gravitate toward a small church because it is small. And because it's cozy and because it's comfortable and because they can get to know everyone there and because they can have kind of their people, quote unquote, surrounding them all the time. But people are drawn to a church plant because they have a heart to see the gospel shared, disciples shaped, and missionaries sent into their communities and across the globe. And it's challenging and it's stretching. I was talking with Kevin earlier this week and I'll go ahead and give him credit for this illustration. He said, you know what? The only time people really want to be comfortable is when they're getting ready to die. That's when they call hospice in. That's when they call hospice in to make sure that you're comfortable as you die. But if this is going, if, if, if Redeemer is going to be a part of what God is doing for the next 15, 20, 30, 50 years in Rockwall County or until Jesus returns, then we've got to have a shift in mindset and begin to think like a church plant that has a mission as opposed to a small church that settles into kind of the mundane and the comfortable. And so that's why we're going to look at Romans 12 for the next several months together. To go back to pushing reset and asking ourselves this question, what does it mean to be the church? How, how do we be the church in our community? And so we're going to dive in where the text starts this morning in Romans chapter 12 beginning in verse 1. And we'll read verse 2 as well. If you don't have a copy of it, it'll be on the screen for you to follow along. Beginning in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So where does it start? Where where does being the church start? Paul's laid out tons of doctrine in chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans. And we'll go through a high-level survey of that as we close. But here's what, I, here's what I want to say. That being the church in this text, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, starts with this. It starts with an appeal that Paul makes to us to offer your body to God. To offer your body to God. In verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now Paul being a good Jewish Christian coming out of his context, he was familiar with all the offerings and all the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. And Paul does not say that sacrifices are done in Christianity. He says it's a different kind of sacrifice now that God desires. Not dead sacrifices laid on an altar, but living sacrifices of our bodies offered up to God. And this this is not a command that Paul gives, but it's an appeal. Now, there's a difference between the two, isn't there? There's a difference between exercising authority and seeking to persuade, right? In in my home, I have the responsibility at times as a dad to exercise authority, right, with my children. And so there are times where I look at my son, who's now about to be nine years old next weekend, and I look at him and I say, you know what? Son, your hour of tablet time for the day is done. That's authority, right? That's a command. There's a boundary that I've drawn there. I'm exercising that authority. It's over. <laughs> Some of you parents were like, I thought my mom was the only one who said that. No, it's, it, your hour of tablet time is done. But there's also times that I look at him and I say, you know what, you know what, Caleb? Do you, when you have over an hour of tablet time a day, do you, do you begin to see some of the ways that you interact with us as your family? Do you begin to see some of the ways that you treat other people around you? Do you see the, the lack of attention and focus that you can give to anything because you're constantly seeing something fly in front of you on a screen? Don't, don't you think that you should, you should limit your tablet time? Right? That's, not, that's not exercising authority, that's appealing persuading based on these circumstances or the effects of this. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's not saying, I'm commanding you. He says, I'm trying to persuade you that you would take this body that God has given you and you would offer it up to him as a living sacrifice. Now, one of the things this does not mean, it does not mean this. It's not, it's not a catch-all term to describe all of us or all of life. What it is, it's a literal reference to your physical bodies, And we're going to get to that in a second about what that looks like and how that works. But what Paul is doing is he's giving an appeal to offer our literal physical bodies up to God. but, But also it doesn't mean that you have to have a flawless or perfect body to offer it to him. Listen, I, some of you may feel that, that you, go, you go back to the Old Testament, you go, well, they, they offered perfect lambs. So I've got to have a perfect body in order for God to want. Why would God want my body? Like, I don't have slender curves where you're supposed to have slender curves. I don't have stacked and jacked up muscles where you're supposed to have stacked and jacked up muscles. Why would God want my body? My body doesn't function well like it used to. Listen, and the closer that I inch toward 40, the more I, I feel that. It doesn't function like it used to. Why would God want my body? 
Listen, if, you, if, if that's how you feel this morning, that you have to have a flawless and perfect physique or that everything has to function rightly, then you're not offering your body to the God of the Bible, but you're offering your, God, your body to the goddess of beauty or the God of productivity. God says, Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices unto God. One of the things this means for you and I is that Christianity is not just offering, because particularly as evangelicals, we tend to think that we're offering our hearts to God. We give Jesus our hearts, but Paul's saying, yes, but you also give him your body. So what does that look like? I think Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 are probably the best commentary on Romans 12, 1 that you could read. In Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, I want you to listen to what he says. It'll be on the screen for you as well. He says, Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul says, Take the members of your body... Right, your arms and your hands and your eyes and your ears and your legs and your feet and, yes, your sexual organs and offer them up to God. Present them to God as a living sacrifice. That you would use them for the sake of righteousness and not unrighteousness, for holiness and not sin, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. And so the question swirling in the back of our minds is, how do we do this? How do we do this? I want to give you a little practical help this morning. I'm going to start with a quote from a dude that died a long time ago. His name is John Chrysostom, one of the greatest preachers of the early church. And this is what he said. He said, how is the body to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil thing, and it has already become a sacrifice. Let the tongue say nothing filthy, and it has become an offering. Let your hand do nothing evil, and it has become a whole burnt offering. But even this is not enough, for we must have good works also. The hand must do alms, the mouth must bless those who curse it, and the ears must find time to listen to the reading of Scripture. He says, sacrifice allows no unclean thing. It's the fruit of all other actions. So he says, you take the members of your body, your eyes and your ears, your your hands and your feet, your legs and your arms, and you offer them up to God in their activity, what you refrain from and what you engage in. Both and. And I thought about three areas that we do that in. I want to share with you this morning that I think are going to set some framework for us as we move through the rest of Romans 12 as Paul keeps talking to us about how to be the church. And the first one is this, that we offer our bodies to God by extending hospitality. We offer our bodies to God by extending hospitality. Listen, one of the ways that you and I offer our bodies to God is whenever we take our hands and our feet And we offer them to God. And you do so whenever you meet someone who walks in the foyer of this building. They walk in the foyer of this building and then you you, you shake their hand. You look them in the eye. You use your eyes to look them in the eye. You say, I'm so glad you're here this morning. Is this your first time? Yes, let me take you. Let me use my feet. I'm going to walk you over to the kids' check-in area so you can get your kids signed in. If you don't have kids, I'm going to walk you all the way back to the worship center. And I'm going to use my hands and my tongue, and I'm going to introduce you to someone else who's already in there and let you guys connect. And as you extend hospitality by greeting someone who walks through these doors for the first time on a Sunday morning, you're offering your hands and your feet and your tongue and your eyes to God as a sacrifice for his service. 
when you walk across the room and shake someone's hand, when you offer your ears to listen to people, to tell stories of their life as opposed to using your tongue to talk about yourself all the time. You're offering your ears to God as a sacrifice as you listen to people. We offer our stomachs to God. Whenever you cook a meal and you invite people over that you've never gotten to know before in the life of this congregation or people who are new, and you open up your house and you bring them in and you go, you know what, I have a natural physical appetite in my stomach that tells me that I'm hungry four or five times a day. That's mine anyway, I don't know about yours. It's four or five times a day. And so I'm going to use my stomach to extend hospitality. I'm going to offer that natural appetite up to God for his service and purposes. See, one of the ways that you and I offer our bodies to God is by extending hospitality. And when we fail to extend hospitality, we are not just refusing to be nice. (laughs) We're not just refusing to open our life up to other people. What we're doing is we're refusing to offer our bodies to God. You do it by extending hospitality. Second of all, you do it by exercising mercy. Exercising mercy. In fact, Paul goes further down in Romans 12 to talk about the gifts, and he talks about some of those being acts of mercy that we do for other people. And so whenever you use your eyes, listen, when you offer your eyes and your body up to God, and you use your eyes to look and seek out the needs of people who are around you, you're making an offering of your body to God. In other words, you turn your eyes off of yourself and your own little self-contained issues and areas and you look outside yourself to see the needs in other people's lives, you're offering your eyes up to God. You're offering your body up to God. When you use your feet to walk into a hospital room, use your feet to walk into a hospital room and extend your hand to hold the person of the bed in the bed and you use your tongue to offer a prayer and to read scripture over them and to bless them. You're engaging in an act of mercy and you're offering your body to God as a living sacrifice. When you use your hands to bake a casserole, right? You know what I'm talking about? When you use your hands to bake a casserole and someone's sick or they just had a baby, you do an, or, or, or they're in the hospital, they just experienced a death in the family, you bake that casserole with love and tenderness and kindness with all kinds of good butter and cheese, and you bring that to their house, and you use your feet to get in the car and push the gas pedal and to drive across town and use that time. You could have been doing something else to go and love on someone and engage in an act of mercy. You're offering your body to God. You're offering it to Him. When you use your hands at the store to put something, take something out of your cart and put it back on the shelf because you don't need it so that you can write a check to somebody who does and contribute to the needs of the saints as Paul talks about further down in Romans 12, then you're offering your body to God, engaging in an act of mercy. When you clean out your closet or you pull out your dresser and you take out all the clothes that you hadn't worn in three years but you think you're going to wear again, and you stuff those in a bag and you deliver them to a family that's in need. You're using your eyes and your hands and your legs and your arms and your back to lift. And you're offering your body to God by engaging in acts of mercy, exercising mercy. And when we fail to exercise mercy, we turn away from people in need and don't see their needs. We're not just being closed off and self-centered and cold-hearted. We're not offering our bodies to God. Thirdly, 
We offer our bodies to God by pursuing purity. By pursuing purity. See, a part of offering our bodies to God is to put sin to death in the members of our body by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to go, go to war against sin in your body. And a part of what that may look like is that you offer your eyes and ears to God. And some of you men in here have struggled with this all of your lives. And you keep cycling back into seasons in which you become engrossed in pornography. No matter how old you are, no matter how advanced you get in age, you continue to trip and fall back into that same cycle of sin. And you begin to offer your eyes and your ears up to the worship of an image on a screen as opposed to valuing the image of God and other people. And a part of offering your body to God is pursuing purity and saying, let my eyes look upon no unclean thing. And guarding your eyes. That may mean there are certain movies that you don't watch. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not the movie police. I'm not going to roll out a list of things that you can and can't watch. But I'm going to say, if there are things that awaken desires within you that are unhealthy, and that you know go against the will of God for your life, then maybe you need to turn your eyes away from those things. Because you know that they are awakening desires within you. They're going to lead you to take steps further down a path that you know you have no business walking down. And so you turn your eyes away from those things and you turn them upon Jesus. You look full in his wonderful face and you taste of his grace afresh to empower you and equip you to say no. So you offer your eyes to God as you pursue purity. You offer your sexual organs to God as you pursue purity. Listen, young ladies, if you're in the room, if you're single in the room or you're a student in the room, listen, there is no one who will take care of your body better than God. You can offer it to a young man. You can offer it to your boyfriend. You can offer it up. In order to find acceptance and approval, you can offer it up to, find, to try and fill the gaping void that you sense in your soul. But there is no one who will take care of your body and of your soul like Jesus Christ. No one. So stop offering your body up to your boyfriend and begin to offer it up to God. In your sexual organs, pursuing purity. If you're outside of marriage and inside marriage. Listen, if that's you this morning, if you're married... And offer your body up to God by enjoying your spouse. By not depriving your spouse, as Paul says elsewhere in his letters. Man, he gets real <laughs> other places. Not depriving your spouse, but offering your body up to God by enjoying one another. And don't go outside of that relationship. You keep pursuing purity, offering even those unspeakable parts up to God if you're here this morning and you're someone who's wrestled with same-sex attraction part of offering your body to God is offering it up to him in celibacy a celibacy and turning away from physical intimacy with anyone that you may be attracted to in that capacity now listen, this morning some of you are like, man, that sounds a little bit prudish and bigoted. But listen, listen, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Come back next week. 
because we're going to wrestle with what's underneath some of that stuff next week. I don't have time to get to it this morning, but come back next week as we look at verse 2, and we're going to get to that, what that looks like and why that is. But where it starts for some of you in this morning is just by walking across the aisle, shaking someone's hand and saying, hey, I'm glad you're here, and offering your body up to God. For some of us, it starts by engaging and exercising mercy and pursuing people that we could be a blessing to and offering your body up to God. For some of us, it starts with pursuing purity and saying no and offering our body up to Jesus with our eyes and our ears and everything that he's made. It's a part of the members of our body. That's what it looks like to offer, present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Now, a couple of things I want to I draw out of this this morning before we're done, and that's this. There's four descriptors that Paul gives here about this kind of living sacrifice. I want to press those for a moment with you. The first one is this. He says, this kind of living sacrifice is your spiritual act of worship. So this, this, this offering is worshipful, this offering is acceptable, this offering is holy, and this offering is continual. Some of you are getting real nervous right now because there's four of those things and we only got 10 minutes left. <laughs> but we're going to blow through them, all right? This offering is worshipful. So what worship is, is not just gathering in a room on Sunday morning and opening our mouths to God, but it's every day of the week that we're offering our bodies up to Him. That is your spiritual service of worship, your spiritual act of worship. Whenever you engage in hospitality, whenever you extend and exercise mercy, whenever you pursue purity, you know what that's called? Biblically, it's called worship. It's called worship. That's what Paul says. Second of all, he says it's acceptable. Acceptable. Now, some of your translations might say pleasing to God. So let me ask this. What, what kind of offering would it be that would be pleasing to God, that would be acceptable to him? And I, th- I think Paul, as again, a good Jewish Christian coming out of his roots in Judaism, I think he would go back to a text like Psalm 51. Psalm 51, where we find the- David writing these words in verses 16 and 17, where he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, Paul says this offering of our bodies to God is not a rote ritual thing that we engage in, nor is it something that we do whenever the, uh, the, the gear shifter of our lives is stuck in neutral. It's not just going through the motions and showing up at church on Sunday. It's not just going through the motions and coming to life group on Tuesday or Thursday or, or, or Sunday. It's not just going through the motions and pulling out a checkbook and writing a check. It's not just going through the motions and showing up at a service project. It's not just going through the motions. Because David says, listen, if that's what you wanted... If that's what you want, he says the, the sacrifices of God, are, you're not, you don't delight in a sacrifice or not pleased with a burnt offering when the heart is in neutral. But this sacrifice, this offering of our bodies that's acceptable and pleasing to God is one where our heart is actually in gear. Where it's in gear. Listen, the very first truck that I ever owned was a 1995 Nissan hard body pickup with a five speed on the floor. And, and I, I bounced that thing all around town for a while until I tried to figure out how to, how to drive a standard. <laughs> Some of you have never had that experience. But listen, in order to get that thing to go, you had to take it out of neutral and you had to put it in gear, in first gear, and push the clutch down and 
into second and accelerate and push the clutch down and drive it into third and fourth and fifth. Right? But when it's in neutral, it's not going anywhere. You can rev the engine all day long, but it won't go anywhere. And the kind of offering that God desires from us is one that is acceptable, it's pleasing. In other words, it's one that our heart is engaged in. Have you ever met someone whose Christianity is more of a burden to them? It seems like whenever they talk about, well, we've got to go this thing now, we've got to go set up, or we've got to go tear down, or we've got to go to this outreach event, or we've got to go to church on Sunday morning, or we've got to go to life group on Tuesday night, or we've got to go to do this, or we've got to go to do that, or got to write a check, or I've got to buy some supplies, or got... It seems like a burden. There's not a whole lot of joy that's bubbling out of their soul. Part of the reason is because their heart is stuck in neutral and it's not engaged in gear. Third, he says this offering is not only worshipful and acceptable, but it's also holy. Now to be holy in the Bible meant this. It meant that you, it was something or someone that was set apart for God's purposes and his service. Set apart for God's purposes in the service. In other words, what, I think what Paul is saying here is that whenever you think about offering your body up to God, you've got to come to the recognition that your body is not your own personal property. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Right? So we've got to stop viewing our bodies kind of like teenagers view their rooms. Okay? And I did. I did too. All right? I'm going to go ahead and just roll it out there. When I was a teenager, I looked at my room and I thought, my room is my own domain. It's my own little kingdom, right? And I should have all the privacy that I want in my room. But what I failed to recognize is that that little corner of space that my parents had carved out for me was still under their roof. It still belonged to them. They owned it. I wasn't paying the mortgage. I hadn't paid that place off. I wasn't paying taxes or insurance. It was theirs. They had built it. It belonged to them, not to me. And there's so many of us who who view our lives that way many times. We view it as if it's our own personal property and we want to shut the doors to certain areas and rooms of our life and say, God, you can come this far, but no further. Because we want kind of a safe Christianity. But what Paul is saying is you offer your body up to God and saying, God, listen, there there are no doors that are shut to you in my life. There are no rooms that are off limits to you. This is all of yours. It's not mine. It's not my personal property. So I offer it up to you. Holy. You have access to everything. And finally, he says, not only is it holy, but it's also continual. Continual. He says it's a living sacrifice, not a dead one. Not a dead one. See, a dead one was offered one time on the altars in ancient Israel. But a living one? A living one is offered every day. Every day. You wake up every morning and you look in the mirror and say, today my life, my body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. I'm going to offer it to him. The next day you wake up and say, my eyes don't belong to me. They belong to God. I offer it to him. Next day you wake up and say, my feet don't belong to me. It'll take me wherever I want to go. They belong to God. They will take me wherever he desires and can use me for his purposes and service. You wake up the next day and say, my hands don't belong to God. They belong to me. They belong to God. I will use them to reach out to whomever he puts in front of me. The next day you wake up and say, you, are you, you with me? 
it's, an, it's, a, it's a continual offering that we make. In fact, the, word, the verb there is a present tense verb form. All of you grammar geeks out there, you're like, Phew. those of you who aren't, you're like, I don't know what that means. That means this. The present tense describes something that's an ongoing, continual event. It's a living sacrifice, not a dead one. One of the things that means is this for us, is it means that we don't just make our offering to God whenever we walked the aisle as a child and took the preacher's hand and prayed a prayer and got dunked in the baptismal. It doesn't mean that we just offer our, our body to God whenever we came down that last night of camp and we all just gathered around and we cried like babies. We offer our bodies to God. So how, let me say this. How do you know if you just had a good cry or if you actually converted? One of the ways that you know is because the offering continues even after the tears are gone. Because devotion and emotion are not the same thing. I know this because I'm married. Devotion and emotion are not the same thing. Listen, my wife, over the last 15 years, she has been devoted to me continually. But I can guarantee you that I've done some things over the course of those 15 years that put us in positions where her emotions for me were not at the top of Mount Everest singing like the sound of music. But she was ravenously devoted. Devotion and emotion is not the same thing. How do you know if you had a good cry or actually converted? Because if you were converted, then the offering continues day after day after day after day. It's not a dead sacrifice. Dead sacrifices can't crawl off the altar, but living ones can. And so as we close, here's what, here's what I want to do. I want to ask and answer one final question. That's this. What is strong enough? What is strong enough to keep us on the altar day after day after day? And listen, it is not the shackles of duty. It is not the ball and chain of I must. But it is the grip of the mercies of God. That's the only thing strong enough to keep us waking up every morning saying, here's my hands, here's my feet, here's my eyes, here's my ears. That's what Paul tells us in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The therefore in chapter 12, verse 1, points back to everything that Paul has said in, verse, in chapters 1 through 11. Everything that he said back here is coming to fruition in chapter 12, verse 1, and following. He's saying all this doctrine is producing this devotion in your life. And this devotion is flowing downstream into your deeds. The things that now, you, how you are to live. He says, therefore, on the basis of everything that I've said back here, the mercies of God, offer your bodies to Him. Offer your bodies to Him. See, Christianity is not, and being the church, right, being the church is not, I'm going to muster up enough willpower to go serve God. Rather, what we have to see is that this offering of our bodies is not a prerequisite for the mercy of God, but it's a response to it. It's not a prerequisite for it, but a response to it. That's what Paul says here. 
And he says it's a response to the mercies of God. Now he uses the plural there to talk about more than one kind of mercy. What's he talking about? Because God's mercy is one thing. It's his kindness moving toward people who are undeserving. People who should be crushed that he is showing compassion for. It's the mercy of God. But he uses the plural to say mercies. Why? Because I think what Paul is saying is this. While God's mercy is one thing, it gets expressed and seen and experienced in all kinds of ways. It has all kinds of facets in our lives. It's kind of like a diamond. Right? Some of you ladies in the room have like a big, massive like, stone on your hand. Some of you have like little small ones. It's okay. Right? But whenever you go to purchase a diamond, they talk to you about several things. They talk to you about cut and clarity and color and carrots. There's a fifth one in there somewhere. I forgot what it was. Um, but they talk about, all, about all those things that make a diamond what it is. And that diamond has multiple facets in it. Whenever you look at the light as it passes through it, it hits those facets and it reflects off, creating the beauty that is that stone. It's one stone with all kinds of facets to it. All kinds of facets. So what are the mercies of God that Paul has in mind here? What are the mercies of God? Chapters 1 through 11, he's unfolded them beautifully and brilliantly across those pages. And you know where he starts? He starts by putting, by, by, by putting the mercies of God up against the black cloth. Like every time you go find a diamond, look for a diamond, right? They always have it against this black cloth. Why? Because the diamond shines most brilliantly against the backdrop of darkness. And that's exactly where Paul starts in the book of Romans. In chapters 1 through 3, he talks about our fallen condition as men and women, as fallen creatures. That we have rebelled against God, Jew and Gentile alike. That no one is faithful enough in their exercising of duty to be saved by God by their own efforts. No one. We're all shut out. He talks about our fallen condition as fallen creatures. And then he moves forward in the middle of chapter 3 and he hits what is probably the greatest conjunction in human history. The biggest but ever. Right, he drops it right there in Romans 3.21. He says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed through Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says, while you were unable to save yourself by your own efforts, God acted and worked. And he showed up through Jesus Christ who would be a sacrifice for your sins. We talked about it last week, a propitiation. That he would take the wrath of God for you and he would turn the wrath of God from you. He would absorb it himself so that you might be rescued and redeemed out of your bondage and slavery to sin and death. So you might enjoy being justified before God, not by what you do, but by what Christ has done. That's chapters 4 and 5 as he talks about justification by faith. That you've been made right with God if you are a Christian, not by your performance, not by your stats on the back of your baseball card, right? But you've been made right with God, not on on the basis of your stats, but on Jesus' stats and on you trusting and throwing the weight of your life on Him and resting on Him and Him alone. Then in chapter 6, he says, because He's justified you, you should offer the members of your body not to sin any longer, but to righteousness and to God. And then in chapter 7, you see a glimpse into the window of a man, a converted man who is still struggling with the remnants of the flesh in his life and fighting against them and fighting against them and fighting against them. But at the end of chapter 7, he says, even as one who still struggles and wrestles with sin, at the end of chapter 7, he comes to say, 
Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, one of the greatest pinnacles of theology in all of the Bible, he says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though I'm still struggling with sin, I rest freely in the grace of God with no condemnation because of Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 8, he comes to say, there is nothing on the face of the earth that can separate you from the love of God that has been poured out for you. In chapter 9, he gives us the reason for that. He says, nothing can separate you from the love of God because you didn't earn God's love by your performance, but you received it as a gift on the basis of his promise that he chose you. He set his affection on you and brought you to him. You weren't just kind of walking along one day and thought, I'm going to go to God. No, God set his affection on you and pulled you out of the mire and the mess and the muck of your life. And then in chapter 10, in chapter 10, Paul says, this salvation is available to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And in chapter 11, he ends by celebrating the mercy of God. And so you get to chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, therefore, on the basis of the multifaceted mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your hands and your feet, your eyes and your ears, your arms and your legs, offer them to him. Because after all, Paul says, in chapter 12, verse 1, it's your, your spiritual or reasonable, some of your translations say, act of worship. That word there, literally translated, means rational. In other words, Paul's saying this. When you think about all the beauties of this great gemstone of God's mercy toward you in Jesus Christ, when you, think of, when that's, when, when you, when you see the mercies of God, then the only rational response that you can have is to get on your knees, lift your hands, and say all to Jesus, I surrender, all to him I freely give. I surrender all, I surrender all, I surrender all. And that is where being the church starts. Would you pray with me? thanking you for your grace and goodness. Father, we ask that in the moments ahead, God, that you would help us, you would help us to offer our eyes to you, you would help us offer our ears to you, you would help us offer our arms and our legs, our hands and our feet. God, knowing that you will care for us like nothing and no one will. Because you've shown that you have. That while we were yet dead in sin, you brought us to life. While we were rebels, you came to rescue. And God, may that truth settle on our hearts this morning. May we see, not miss the mercies of God so that we think that being the church starts with us mustering up enough willpower that we would see that this kind of offering isn't a prerequisite for your mercy but a response to it. And so we would say, God, Everything I am is yours. There's no closed doors in my life. Everything's open and bare to you. 
And my heart, God, would you put our hearts in gear as we think about your mercies in our lives that it wouldn't be just a rote ritual going through the motions any longer. But would you awaken us that we might live our lives to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name.